This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined from Fakatani by Mawera Karatai. Kia ora, Mawera. Happy Christmas Eve, Eve. Sam, how's it going? It's oh, it all is going Christmas well. Eve, Eve. That's so good. We're, um, we are, we've got a slightly overcast day and we're about to go bike riding. That sounds like a good thing. Even if it rains, it would it still does. be a good thing. <laughs> and who are we introducing today, Mawira? Today it is my great pleasure to introduce Emily Crossley, who's coming to us from Japan. She's uh, currently uh, studying, uh, engaged in a postdoctoral fellowship looking at wildlife tourism in Japan, which is really interesting. Welcome. Thanks for sharing with us today. Thanks so much for having me, guys. And welcome to Japan. Can we say that? Because we know you've just arrived. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a little bit strange because I have this feeling that I've just arrived a few days ago. Um, but this is actually, I think, day 20 for me in Japan. But it's been a bit of a staggered arrival because I had to do two weeks of quarantine in Tokyo when I first got off the plane. So that was my first sort of Japanese bubble, I suppose, just on my own in a little little hotel in Shinjuku. It was a little bit frustrating because I've always wanted to visit Tokyo and it was right there on my doorstep and I couldn't go out and see anything. Um, I just had to keep to myself. And then I arrived up here in Hokkaido in Sapporo a few days ago. So I've just been settling in trying to adjust to the uh, rather extreme weather conditions. So it got down to, I think, minus 11 degrees Celsius uh, on the first day I was here. And next week it's forecasted to get down to minus 17. So it's not really a climate I'm really accustomed to yet. So I've brought some crampons with me, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm hoping will help to get from A to B. <laughs> So what was the Japanese quarantine hotel like? It was it was a really interesting experience. And because I study travel and tourism, I'm I'm obviously sort of going in there with a bit of an academic lens. Um, I I've been looking forward to coming to Japan for so long. And it was something that had really sort of built up in my mind. You know, like what would quarantine be like? Obviously, we know what it's like to be in lockdown at home. 
Um, but I knew that this would be a really different experience. It would be a really unfamiliar environment. But in some ways, I was really looking forward to it because it had been quite a stressful period leading up to coming to Japan, as you can imagine, with all of the uncertainty with the border, the issues with getting my visa and flights, etc. So I guess I was looking to the quarantine as being this time for, you know, pausing, relaxing, um, reflecting. Uh, and and getting some work done <laughs> treating it as a bit of a writing retreat I suppose uh, but if if I'm honest it was a lot harder psychologically than I had expected um, it was I think one of the reasons for that was my difficulty adjusting to the time zone so Japan is only four hours behind New Zealand and in my mind I thought well, that's not a very big difference to adjust to I go back to Europe every year and that's obviously a much bigger bigger change but what I'd forgotten of course is moving to the northern hemisphere it was coming from summer to winter and so I'd get to sort of six o'clock in the evening my body was saying it's time for bed and of course looking out of the window it was pitch black outside and so it was kind of affirming that um, but yeah, I think I did find the isolation quite difficult in quarantine. And one of the th things that I found really difficult that I wasn't prepared for was the fact that the window was all boarded up. So I've always had this feeling of being, you know, quite OK with living in small spaces. I like that feeling of containment, being cosy, just in your little environment that you can control. But there's something liberating about being able to look out of the window and feel that connection even if it's just sort of in your imagination that connection to the outside world other things going on around you and so when I arrived in my quarantine hotel um, I'm still not quite sure what it was but they'd stuck some sort of opaque plastic or sort of translucent plastic on all of the windows so you couldn't see outside at all and at first I thought is it just me is there a way of flicking a switch or something and it will it would change but no I found the edge of the plastic and it was actually stuck hard on um, so I managed to open the window I think 10 centimeters and that's as far as it was would go and so that's kind of what I saw of the outside world but the other thing I find a little bit challenging about quarantine is I think coming from New Zealand and the communications we've had in the country I feel have been really clear throughout this whole process this year. Um, initially, I think when we went into lockdown, there was a little bit of confusion about things like, you know, are you allowed to use your car to go to the park for a walk if you're in an urban area, things like that. Um, but broadly speaking, I think everyone's really known where they stand, what's, what they're allowed to do, what they're not allowed to do, and how they can be a team player in all of this. And so coming to Tokyo a few weeks ago, um, the the regulations the instructions i was provided with i found were quite <laughs> open to interpretation shall we say um i wasn't really 100 percent sure what i was or wasn't allowed to do i was hearing slightly different messages from different people and so in the end i did go out to get food um, and have a little breath of fresh air every couple of days uh, but it was a little bit stressful thinking mm, am i allowed to do this should i really be in the hotel the whole time. Um, so that was quite quite difficult, I think, just constantly thinking, what are where are the boundaries here? Mm. Um, and I think that in Japan, there hasn't really been a lockdown in the sense that we've had in other parts of the world, because as far as I'm aware, the, the government here doesn't really have the legislative power to be able to impose those restrictions on the people. So a lot of it is done on um, trust and um, 
you know, setting expect setting societal expectations for people and, and expecting that people will conform. So yeah, it was an interesting experience. I'm quite glad to get out. But um, when I finally did get here to Sapporo, I, uh, I'm in, in some university accommodation here and I had to sign all of this paperwork. And then the manager gave me a form and said, this one's for the university. And lo and behold, they were asking me not to go out for another 14 days. Oh <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I thought, no, what? <laughs> so it turns out it's not, it sounds like it's sort of, it's not full quarantine. It's just encouraging me to only go out for essential business. So going to work, obviously going to the supermarket, get food, get myself set up. Um, but again, asking me not to use public transport as much as possible for the next two weeks. So yeah, it'll be about a month of some sort of restriction in total by the time I'm done. Let's take <laughs> the first of your music choices. Let's have nothing to say, inspect. Why this one? So this is part of the, the lo-fi genre, um, low fidelity. And I've listened to a lot of lo-fi this year. It's one of the things that's really got me through. Um, and interestingly enough, I was reading an article last night that was saying that a lot of people have turned to lo-fi music throughout the stress of this pandemic um, and that there's something about it that helps people to relax but also to work really productively it's quite a sort of you know um, predictable mellow sound to listen to so um, that's partly why I chose to have a lo-fi track but also this one in particular um, on the YouTube channel that I use the the photo actually on the video is a street scene from Japan so as I was dreaming of coming to Japan this year I would listen to this track and see this street scene from Tokyo and hope that one day I'd be able to get there myself <laughs>
lucky that you've arrived to move into university accommodation because it would be kind of scary moving to a country where you can't speak the language in the middle of winter having to find accommodation tell me about it sam seriously i can hardly speak a word of japanese i have been trying to learn and in in quarantine obviously that was a time when i was able to do a little bit of learning but um it's it is a difficult language and I suppose, you know, as an Anglophone traveller, there can be this assumption that you go overseas and people will speak at least some English. You kind of bank on that. But it's really not true in many parts of the world. Um, And it's certainly been my experience so far in Japan. Um, This is actually the second trip I've made to Japan this year. I've been really, really lucky. I came here for a conference earlier in the year. And I remember going to Kyoto um, and being quite surprised that a lot of people didn't speak English there because it's obviously a UNESCO World Heritage Site. They have millions of tourists every year. Uh, so, yeah, learning Japanese is really at the, the top of my list of things to do. Um, and I think I'm quite, you know, in preparing for this podcast, I was trying to think of some, you know, reflections and things to share and to say. And I was really just drawing a blank. My mind just felt completely blank. And I think that part of the reason for that is, I've just been in survival mode the past few weeks. You know, like you say, when you move to another country, even when there isn't that language barrier, even when there aren't freezing cold ice rink pavement to get everywhere, it's 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 really exhausting. But I feel very, you know, physically and mentally exhausted, I think, for the, the process. Um, even trying to, yeah, I had to go and get some essentials for my room yesterday and um got a taxi back and couldn't couldn't communicate to the taxi driver what my dress was just trying to show on google maps and everything but he just wasn't getting it <laughs> so even the simplest of tasks suddenly become quite daunting yeah i find it's things like finding the supermarket particularly in a country where it doesn't even have the the, the same alphabet that we have yeah, and exactly. You, you've no idea because it doesn't actually say like New World Supermarket. It's just a <laughs> New World or whatever the equivalent is. So, yeah. How do you find these things? <laughs> I'm quite lucky actually because um, about a 10 minute walk from where I'm staying is quite a big supermarket. But even just going in there to get, you know, my first lot of groceries, when I went in, it's, it's sort of like there's a supermarket, but then other shops under the same roof. So there's a hundred yen shop, there's a supermarket, there's a drugstore, but there are no walls between them, but they have different. So going in at first, I was like, okay, do I just get my groceries and then go to any checkout? But no, I think they're actually distinct shops. <laughs> so yeah, it's certainly very difficult to navigate. Yeah. 
And you found your way to the university? Yes, I've been very lucky, actually, that um, I have a couple of friends and and colleagues here who are are officially hosting me. And, um, yeah, my host researcher came to collect me from my accommodation for my first day on Monday and actually walked me down to the university. I have a horrible sense of direction, usually. I'm one of those people, if you say, you know, go this way, go that way, you can't miss it. I'm the one who will miss it. Um, <laughs> so they very kindly collected me for my accommodation and walked me to the university. And um, it's quite easy. It's two straight lines. So you pretty much can't miss it. Um, but something I was reflecting on yesterday is because basically at the moment, the pavements are just compacted snow and ice. There are little stretches where you'll see the pavement, but mainly it's all under snow and ice. And because I'm not I don't have a very good sense of balance. I'm not used to walking on snow and ice. I'm, I just have my eyes on the ground the whole time. And so it's quite difficult to get your bearings and just think, okay, you know, you almost have to remind yourself to look up, look at the landmarks, the buildings, think, where am I? Um, yeah. And so what is the the purpose of the trip? Okay, so the purpose of the trip is to complete a research project on Japanese wildlife tourism. So I've been doing research on tourism for a number of years now. Um, I started off doing uh, research on volunteer tourism. So that's where people volunteer their time to work on a a charitable project, um, wildlife conservation or community development um, in usually low-income parts of the world as part of broader travels, part of holidays. Um, So I've been doing that for a number of years and I applied for some funding at the beginning of this year. Um, So this process has pretty much dominated my entire 2020 um, to, yeah, so that the project is to come and study a number of Japanese wildlife tourism sites. And I got the idea when I came here earlier this year. So when I came for the conference, it was in a different part of the country. It was in Honshu, uh, but I did a little bit of traveling around. I went to Nara, I went to Kyoto, and I went to a monkey mountain, Arashiyama monkey uh, mountain in Kyoto, which is basically you walk up through a forest to the top of a hill, uh, get an amazing view of Kyoto. And at the top there, there is a, a free ranging monkey troop um, that uh, they, they provide food for. And so they tend to stick around to where the the tourists are. And I also went to um, the Nara Deer Park where they have, again, uh, free roaming seeker deer. And so I love animals and I, you know, I enjoyed these experiences as a tourist myself. And it got me thinking about the variety of animal tourism attractions that you have in Japan. So you've got everything from the attractions I've just mentioned, where the animals are not enclosed in any way. They are completely free to come and go. But there is food provisioning. So there are deer crackers. There are um, bits of fruit you can provide the monkeys. So they tend to stick around. You've got everything from that through to, you know, your cat cafes. We can go have a coffee and sit with cats. Um, these days there's a whole array of other animal cafes as well. So there's a famous hedgehog cafe in Tokyo. There are otter cafes, goat cafes. I mean, honestly, any animal you can think of, there's probably an animal cafe in Japan that caters for them. Um, so yeah, I've, I've just been really fascinated by that topic, um, by human, non-human animal in, interactions in tourism settings. So that's what I'm hoping to to study really um, through a mixture of online and offline methods but again 
given the year that it's been, it, it's quite difficult to plan a research project because at the moment, even though I've been able to get into Japan, the border is largely closed to almost all international tourists. So if I was trying to come over here for a holiday, I wouldn't have been able to get into the country. It's only because I was um, given a resident visa to come and live and work here that I was able to get in. So my, I'm hoping that at some point mid to late next year, international tourism will restart in Japan and I'll be able to do the, uh, the offline, in-person uh, ethnographic research here. Um, but if not, I'll need to rethink my plans, basically. Yeah. There's a lot of that sort of tourism, not just the animal tourism, but the volunteer tourism and the the international development edu education. There's the sort of the, the trips that Rotary Clubs and things do. All of those have just stopped. Mm. Yeah. Do you think there's going to be a big impact on the sorts of places that were had become reliant on those? Yeah, definitely. Um, inevitably, I think. Um, I, I mean, within the animal context, for example, we're already seeing that. Um, in fact, when I first went to, I mean, it's, it's not it's not a volunteering thing, I suppose. Um, but in terms of the reliance that places, populations, animals have on tourism around the world is absolutely enormous. So even when I came to Japan in, it would have been mid to late February this year, and I went to the deer park. Um, this was right at the beginning of, of the pandemic. And I believe that Japan had just closed its border to China at the time. And Japan receives a lot of Chinese tourists. And so when I went to the deer park, I bumped into some locals uh, who spoke a bit of English and they were feeding the deer acorns. And so we got chatting and they basically said that because it was winter, and because the deer usually relied on tourists to come and buy, they call them these deer crackers that you can buy from vendors throughout the park and feed the deer. They said that the deer were hungry, that they were reliant on the tourists to come and feed them. Suddenly, one of the major flows of tourism from China had stopped abruptly. And so these locals were coming and feeding the deer. And we've seen that around the world. Um, uh, again, with, with those deer in Nara, there were reports of them straying out from the park and coming a little bit more into the town. They do come into town a little bit anyway, but straying further from the park than they usually would because they were looking for food. Um, so I think not just not just in a volunteer tourism context, I think in any type of tourism context, when you have that dependency, that reliance on tourism income, uh, tourism support for local people, for local animal populations. I've heard reports from um, parts of Africa where they usually have a lot of income from safari tourism and now poaching is on the rise because that income isn't coming in. So, you know, people are just turning to other ways of surviving that aren't necessarily the best for conservation efforts or for the long term. So I think we're in a real conundrum, really, because on the one hand, the tourism industry does receive a lot of criticism um, for being unsustainable environmentally, uh, for leading communities and places into these situations of dependency. On the other hand, what do we do? I mean, within the, the academic tourism community, there's been a lot of discussion this year about this, this opportunity to reset, to rethink, to redesign the industry. Um, and I'm really hopeful that some change will come, 
not just for tourism, but for all sorts of different things that we do in our everyday lives, the way that we work, the way that we interact. Um, it's definitely an opportunity to, to pause for reflection and think, okay, we've been ticking along and doing things this particular way. Are there other ways of doing it? Is this the way that we want to live? Um, I mean, you look at some tourism destinations that have been um, played with what we call over tourism. So they're just absolutely swamped with tourists all the time. And one of the cities that's always mentioned is Venice, right? Uh, with big cruise ships and uh, particular parts of the city that are always incredibly crowded. And I love Venice. I've been a couple of times, one of my favorite cities. Um, and of course, during the lockdowns in Italy, these images started to appear on social media of the animals returning to Venice. So suddenly you could see shoals of fish swimming in the turquoise waters. There were swans, there were, there were reports of dolphins. And I think what's interesting about that sort of animals returning social media phenomenon, if you like, is that there is some truth to it, but it's also partly fiction. So it turned out that some of these stories were partly if not completely fabricated so the dolphins for example i think were not spotted in venice they were spotted somewhere else in italy so there was some truth to it but it wasn't they were sort of taking pieces of information and then co-locating them within this kind of city context but i think it's interesting to look at things like that because you know what does it say about our collective desires as human beings and the connection to nature that we that we want to have yeah, so it will be very interesting to see what happens after all of this. You know, will we just revert to how things were, to the status quo? Um, I think I think it will probably be a bit of a mixture. People people don't want their businesses to go under. Countries don't want their economies to go under. People need jobs. But there is also that desire to sort of rebuild, restructure in a more sustainable way. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokanui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā hi arohan, kia koutou, koutou ho. Hope you're all happy stay for superstars and beloved universes. And I really hope wherever you are, whatever's happening, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very sustaining, illuminating you more each day, who you are trying to nature's art. You need here makes better. Thank you. So as we know, we're heading into a time of rebirth and renewal with the solstice. And of course, year was each moment is an opportunity for rebirth. And, and of course, our consciousness is constantly uniquely perceiving and appreciating all aspects are new. But we're heading into a time that is societally and culturally a time of celebration. So all of those aspects that we know and love, a sense of abundance, a sense of togetherness, a sense of bounty, a sense of a respite from the hard work all the industry and all of the productivity and all of the, the effort and the time we have given to all our working worlds this year, of course, is starting to ease off, I hope, for you. And we're having some time, I hope, for you with those we love. And for those of us who have loved ones overseas, my beautiful mum over in the UK, of course, we are experiencing love at a distance. And with all the wondrous technology that we have created, a very talented species, we, of course, can communicate and connect this time, which is fantastic. And, of course, here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, we're so lucky. We're in the state of 
unparalleled freedom around the entire globe, we are the luckiest. So I hope that for all of us at this time of year, we can really, really enhance that sense of gratitude and appreciation for who we are and where we are right here, right now. Another wonderful aspect, of course, about being alive is that we can choose how we wish to experience our reality and how we wish to celebrate our reality. And whilst we have many cultural expectations of this time, of course we don't have to go along with any of them. We can behave as we choose to behave and in a way that feels right to us. So I really hope for you, however you're choosing to celebrate this time, it's really meaningful for you. It helps to grow and expand your sense of connection with those other human life forms that you hold dear, but also with all life to which we are related in an infinite web. And I really hope that whatever gifts you're choosing to share at this time, they are gifts that it works best for you to share. I'm very grateful that I have my knitting, which I really love, and it's so relaxing and so soothing for me. And I find it, you know, really therapeutic. And so, of course, I can knit things for people, which is wonderful. And here we are in a Kiwi Christmas, the height of summer, people receiving woolen gifts, which they can enjoy in a few months' time. Hopefully. Hopefully we'll have lovely warm weather. It's quite entertaining, but I really enjoy it. And, of course, just that gift that we are giving ourselves of time to spend with those we love, to share our presence. And as they say, our presence is present enough. My whanau have decided we're not giving presents, but we are given presents. So we are going to be enjoying spending the day together, copious amounts of food, copious amounts of scrabble, which was my fave, and I think it will be a lovely day. So I really hope for you all, you have a wonderful, wonderful time. I'm so grateful for these five minutes each day that we've had together this year. Really looking forward to more. And thank you all for being born and being amazing. I look forward to talking to you more soon. Thanks so much. Kakiti. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Emily Crossley in Sapporo in northern Japan. Emily, and you were talking before the break about um, the return to, you know, the old life of what does the new 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 society look like and we had this wonderful hope that in New Zealand we would continue with this utopia of more animal life and less working hours and more families doing family things and but I've seen the all the hope and dreams for that sort of eroding which I've I found really sad mm. and um and and I think that we've still got loads of birds around because I'm sitting here listening the moment and and i'm really i'm probably more aware of bird life than i've ever been in my life really um yeah because 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 that's what we had we had nature yeah. we didn't have anything else we had nature so was so all of a sudden i, I was aware of this tree that the that um it's a taiwanese cherry tree that oh. had at one time 27 tuis fighting for the for the cherries and so 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 my awareness has certainly remained with our wild with our you know with our animal life around us mm-hmm. but I, but i've noticed everybody going back to work and the cars are on the road and less families walking and cycling and and i, I just feel a bit sad about that i feel the same way um it was it's something I've been reflecting on being here, being in quite a large city now, 
is how lucky we were in many parts of New Zealand, the access that we had to nature. I mean, we have a garden at home, we're close to the golf course, we're within walking distance of the beach. I mean, we were really spoilt for choice during lockdown of beautiful places to go where you could be in the fresh air, see plants and trees and nature. And I think probably many of us, like you were saying, we were, were really more attuned to nature. Partly it was just easier because there wasn't the sound of the traffic anymore. You know, suddenly all the cars stopped, all the traffic stopped, and you could just hear the sound of the wind and the ocean and the birds. And I remember when we came out of the first lockdown and I, I drove into town for the first time and I, I parked in town and I almost had a panic attack. I mean, just the, just the sound of the traffic, it was so intense, so overwhelming. Um, yeah, it was really, really confronting. And I had, that, I had that same feeling of a little bit of despair, thinking, oh, we've, we've just reverted back. And what you were saying before about um, different working patterns, that, that was one of my, I think that was one of my biggest hopes, actually, or that, that would come out of 2020 for us, is that businesses and companies would really look seriously at the need to have all of their employees on site all of the time. And look, I totally understand that there are many, many jobs out there where you have to be on site. Uh, there's, there's no way around it. But I also think that there are lots of jobs where people commute a lot every day, you know, have a stressful commute, they're polluting the environment, um, and they're, they're doing work that could be done remotely. And of course, there are people who don't want to work remotely. Uh, it's difficult if you have children um, or they just like to maybe have that, um, you know, that division between their home life and their work life. But it's one of the things that I really enjoyed during lockdown was working from home. I just felt like I had it was a better sort of rhythm to get into. You know, it was easier to take a meaningful break. We could really have some peace and quiet. Um, but no, it, it, I don't. I think that it's still uh, too early to tell whether there will be lasting change. But I think that there's been a lot of pressure on businesses just to sort of get back to being productive and go back to what it looked like before.
that is Yusuf Days and Alpha Mist. Love is the message. I think it's a nice message to have this year, and it's a piece of music that I just keep coming back to. I'm not quite sure why, but I think that there's something, I just feel really alive when I listen to this music, and I feel like you're transported on a journey through it. So I wanted to share it with other people. What lessons do you think we can take from the pandemic and the pandemic response for the bigger, longer term problems that the the world faces? I'm thinking of climate change and, and social inequity on a large scale. Can we take stuff from that? Well, I think it connects to what we were just talking about, really. Um, although the lockdowns have caused enormous disruption and um, economic damage, and we can't ignore that. Um, I think it, the fact is that not everything has shut down. And I think that we need to look at those parts of the system that continue to run very smoothly and maybe even worked better. You know, I certainly felt like I was much more efficient working from home. There were no distractions. I was able just to crack on and get things done. And I'm sure a lot of people around the world felt the same way. And yet there is this culture of presenteeism. You have to be seen to be working. It doesn't matter if you're working but tucked away. Are you there at your desk? I think that there really needs to be a culture shift there. Surely the emphasis should be on getting your work done. And if it's better for you to do that at home, then that's going to have positive knock-ons for, for the environment as well. And it might sound like it's just, you know, but collectively you see that happening repeated across the world millions of times and that's going to make a difference. So I think that's one thing is looking at our culture of work. Um, I have friends around the world who have the most enormous commutes. I have some friends who commute two hours each way every day and I can't help but feel like that's not a great way to live. And yet a lot of people are living that way. Surely that's got to change. I think something else that will change, which maybe isn't desirable, but I think will probably happen, is the way that we travel and the way that we engage with tourism. Um, I think that's something that still remains to be seen. I'm sure that once all of these restrictions are lifted, a lot of people will just want to go out and have that holiday that they maybe missed this year or that they've been waiting for. But I'm sure that there'll be also a lot of people who are really quite nervous about the idea of travel again. Because we've seen that at a drop of a hat, everything can change. We're seeing that in the UK at the moment, right? On a sort of, you know, domestic scale. People had travel plans to go to be with their families for Christmas. And within the space of a few days, all of those plans have had to be abandoned because of the new lockdown. So I really wonder about the psychological effect that that will have on people going forward, this sense of, can you plan any more? And if you're going to plan a trip, is it better maybe to plan a trip that's a little bit more local or regional or within your country so that if something does happen again, you haven't lost as much money. Maybe your national airline will have some sort of a credit scheme like we've seen with Air New Zealand. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of travel and I think it's incredibly enriching for, for all people. But I, I do wonder whether maybe exploring more of your own backyard is something that that could have posi positive um, effects for the environment and, mm, yeah. Or perhaps slow travel so the disruptions don't matter so mm -hmm. much. That you're yeah, going absolutely. to go and spend sev several weeks or months in a place. It doesn't really matter if the plane is cancelled on that particular day. Just talking about yeah. travel or changes in the UK, my Facebook is full of people from the UK saying things like, well, what am I going to do with all this food I've got in? Because oh, they've really? ordered their Christmas oh. dinners, they've got the giant turkey, and now no one's coming for Christmas dinner. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's. I think it's been a real blow to people in the UK. I mean, they've had it hard this year. And they really needed they really needed this, I think, a nice Christmas to come together and just be with one another. So, it, yeah, I was speaking to some of my friends in the UK the other day and it's, it's really hit them hard. I guess they'll just have to have a feast on their own because <laughs> you don't want all that food to go to waste. <laughs> It'll be turkey curry for weeks to come. So do you have a plan for Christmas? <laughs> well, it's a little bit strange for me because... Um, I'm obviously here on my own and Christmas is not apparently so much of a thing in Japan. So when I first came over here and I was telling everyone, you know, it was going to be really cold and snowy. A lot of people said, oh, you're going to have an amazing white Christmas. And that's what I was thinking, too. Um, but in fact, Christmas is not even a public holiday here. So I'm probably going to be at work. <laughs> and what, what people have been telling me is that Christmas is more of a couple's thing. So it's almost a little bit more like Valentine's Day. So you might go out for a meal with your partner. You might get them some chocolates. And that's it. So it's not a time for coming together with family. So in a way, I think that's going to help me because if I had just arrived here on my own and everyone was going away and having these wonderful family times together and I was just here in my little flat by myself, I think that would have been quite depressing. Um, but I think I'm just going to treat it as a normal day like every other day. Uh, the, the big the big event here is New Year. So um, that's usually when there are lots of celebrations. People will go out to shrines at midnight to pray. There'll be fireworks and, and celebrations. But again, given the situation in Japan, um, there are there are new restrictions that are coming into into effect quite soon. So usually people would travel around the country and go back home, and they're trying to stop that from happening because the COVID situation is is not great here. So it's probably going to be quite a low key Christmas and a low key New Year. I have quite low expectations. <laughs> I just want to keep warm, <laughs> warm and fed, and that will be enough for me. I think. And not slide over on the footpath. Not slide over on the footpath. No, I've got my crampons at the ready. So <laughs> so I have some questions to end the show with. What is the biggest success you've had in the last year or so? Wow. Um, I think that's a great question because I think it's really easy to focus on the negatives and we're all a little bit grumpy, aren't we? And, you know, saying we can't wait for the year to be over. But I suppose professionally for me it's been a really good year um and actually in some ways i think that the lockdown was the sort of the kick that i needed to get going with my research i've been ticking along and doing a little bit of writing here and there going to conferences but 
there was something about the lockdown that really kind of spurred me to write a couple of papers that got published. So I suppose <laughs> in a funny way that that's been quite positive for me. I suppose the greatest success I personally have had this year is being able to come here and start my postdoc in Japan. Um, I started this process in early March. We applied in April, <laughs> found out I had it at the end of August. And then it was a process of several months after that to actually get me here. So it really dominated the whole year for me, put a lot of work in. And honestly, at some points, I didn't know if it was going to happen. I thought, was all this work in vain? You did spend what, quite what a lot of you did spend quite a lot of time sending stuff off to various embassies and oh, not hearing back for a long time. So much paperwork, Sam. I was drowning in paperwork. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just wonderful to feel like your hard work has paid off, really. And so, you know, yeah, get, getting here, being here in Japan is is my, my greatest achievement this year. And I'm but I, you know, it's, cert it's certainly been a team effort. So um, lots of colleagues at Otago Polytechnic, uh, where I've come from, uh, helped with that process, helped me to apply, supported me. Uh, the team here at Hokkaido University as well. So I certainly don't want to, you know, as much as it's my personal achievement, because I've put a lot in myself, it's definitely not something that I've achieved on my own. Um, it's really been a, a huge team, of, an international team of people working together to make this happen. Um, yeah, so it's fantastic to be here finally and quite surreal. <laughs> and <laughs> lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Advice? Hmm, I suppose it's difficult to know where the listeners are. Are they all in New Zealand? Would we have an international audience all around? All over the place all over the place it's difficult isn't it i suppose that's one of the things i've been thinking about is how different things are day to day here in japan compared to new zealand um i suppose something i'm kind of focusing on at the moment is self-care and resilience and that's one of the things that i'm maybe not the best at if i'm honest not the most resilient person quite easily not and something i really want to sort of focus on for the year ahead and um I suppose there are ways that you can find the positives in, in bad situations. And as much as a lot of people have focused on the need to connect with others and to maintain community uh, throughout the lockdowns that the world is experiencing, personally what I found this year is that there's also a lot of potential in turning inwards. And yes, humans are social creatures and we need each other, we need family, we need connection, we need community. I think that sometimes we also need quiet time, time to reflect, time to be by ourselves, time to listen to awesome music um, and to have that, that solitude. So I think that if there's something that we can think about this, this coming year is the way that we can achieve that balance, you know, maintaining community throughout difficult times, but also working on ourselves and being okay to be on our own if that's needed yeah thank you for that Moira 
it's a, a, a real uh, testament to your resilience as a human, <laughs> the journey that got you to where you are right at the minute. And that's a, that's a wonderful thing. And you're a great role model for uh, all the people who will come after you trying to do the same sort of thing around the world as, as we all adapt to this constant change. But um, I really appreciated your worldview today and you're a kind and thoughtful person. And it's been really lovely to talk to you and thank you for sharing with us. Thanks, Maria. And if I can leave you with one final thought on, based on that is that, you know, we shouldn't stop following our dreams. And the number of people I spoke to in New Zealand when I said I was trying to go to Japan, there were some really shocked faces. A lot of people sort of had this idea of, am I being forced to go? Um, but this was my dream and I wasn't going to let this pandemic stop it. And so I think it shows that these things are still possible. Don't put your life on hold because this pandemic could still be going on for quite some time. And so you've just got to really continue to go and get what you want from life and chase your dreams. Yeah. Thank you very much for that. We're going out to Jingle Bells all week. It's not a lo-fi version, I'm afraid. It is <laughs> French, Scottish, Kelkilt. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.